Uh, welcome to The Future Strategist. Today, my guest is Robin Hansen. Robin is an economist at George Mason University. He blogs at overcomingbias.com, and he very recently wrote a book called The Age of M. Robin, how are you doing? Great. Happy to talk to you. Oh, good. Um, so what is an M? So an M is a kind of robot. It's a kind of artificial intelligence. It's a kind of artificial intelligence that would be as smart as humans, so it's human level, uh, but it's built by a particular technique. So, uh, so far, the kinds of artificial intelligence, smart computers that we've been building, we've been building mostly by writing software, writing algorithms, uh, running it on data, things like that. And we've been accumulating that for 70 years. Uh, but if we kept going at the rate we've been going, uh, it'll take a long time before the software we write reaches human level ability, plausibly several centuries. And, and you, M is a different approach. And you have a background in artificial intelligence, don't you, before you became an economist? I did. I spent nine years as an AI researcher at Lockheed and NASA. Um, and then I went back to school to get my PhD in social science at the age of 34. So it is possible to start late in life <laughs> and uh, not fail. Okay, so you think it might take several centuries for us to write software that would create a computer intelligence as smart as a human being if we did it from scratch? That's been the trend so far. That's roughly the rate at which we've been going. Um, and that's based on, uh, my, I've been asking uh, AI researchers who are experienced in the field for at least 20 years how far they think they've come in the field in 20 years, and they say roughly 5 to 10%. So at that rate, it would take two to four centuries. But there's another way to make smart software. So today, if you have a computer that's running software, and you want that same kind of software to run on a different computer, one approach is to stare at the old software and try to guess how it works and then to write new software on the new computer that works like the old one. But there's a different approach. It's called porting software. To port software from an old machine, all you have to do is write what's called an emulator that makes the new machine look like the old machine to the software. So if you can make an emulator on the new machine, then you can just move the old software over, and then it just runs on the emulator. And from the old software's point of view, it's just running on the old machine. And from your point of view, you have the old software working on your new machine. Okay, so I used to own an Atari game machine. So you're saying if I wanted to run all my Atari cartridges on my new computer, I could either redo all the code or come up with one emulator, and that would automatically run any game that used to run that, that could run an Atari cartridge. That's correct. And people have done that sort of thing for old programs when people have spent a lot of years writing a big old complicated program that they don't understand and don't want to bother to rewrite. Uh, they've often just written an emulator, and that has successfully let them move the program over to the new machine. So our brains are running software, uh, and they're running on a particular kind of hardware. And the idea is to write an emulator for human brains so that uh, we could move the software of the human brain over to more ordinary computers and run the software there. And you think it would be easier to write this emulator than it would be to build an intelligence from scratch. Why Why is that? Well, uh, so conceptually, it means you don't have to understand how the brain works other than how individual cells work. So you have to model each cell in the brain, each kind of cell, and say, how does it take signals in, change internal states, and send signals out? And that's not easy. Cells are complicated. But still, individual cells are a lot simpler than entire brains. So we conceptually just need to understand each cell. Now, the it's, brain is huge, it's got lots of cells, uh, but that's just a scaling thing. We, we've, we've known how to use you know, huge computers and do lots of things over, over again for a long time. So we need three things to make M's, or which is short for emulation, possible. 
Uh, one is we need lots of cheap, fast parallel computers because brains are huge. So if you're going to emulate them, you're going to need a huge computer. Uh, secondly, you're going to need to scan actual brains. That's where you get the software out of an individual brain is. You scan a particular brain and you see where all the cells are and what types they are and what they're connected to. All the internal state of the cells that you need uh, that represents how they compute. And then you need models of how each cell works. And if you have models of how each cell works and you have a scan of a particular brain that works, then if you make a computer model of that entire brain with a model for each cell and uh, all connected up the right way, uh, it's got to work. That is, if the models are good enough and your scan is good enough, then it should have the same input-output behavior. So you hook it up with hands, eyes, ears, legs, etc. And uh, you could talk to it. It would talk back. Uh, you might ask it to do things politely, perhaps, and it might do them. And if you could make those things cheap, then they would be more cost-effective than ordinary humans, and that would change everything. Okay. So you're assuming there's nothing like special about our brains, that it's just another machine. Well, uh, yeah, I have a strong background in physics, and I think we're pretty confident that uh, the brains are just more biochemistry, just like all the other biochemistry we see. There's nothing special other than lots and lots of uh, parts that work in complicated ways. Um, how far away are we, do you think, from being able to create these M's? Not close. So I'm not telling you something's about to happen in the next 10, 20, or even 30 years. Uh, roughly sometime in the next century or so seems where the trends uh, would suggest, but there's a lot of uncertainty there. I more plausibly think that this would happen before the other kind of artificial intelligence, and that's the real key to my book. The key assumption is that uh, emulations are the first really big disruption that we see compared to uh, the lives that we know of today. The, it's the first really big disruption on the order of the Industrial Revolution or the Farming Revolution before that. Okay. So if we got super smart computers, then we probably wouldn't have an economic need of developing M's. There would be a different need, but it would be less, and it would play out very differently. So my book wouldn't be very relevant then. There, there might well be M's, but uh, they wouldn't be the center of the economy. Okay. Going through your three assumptions, first, how much computing power would it take? I mean, it, how much more powerful would a computer need to be than, say, the computers on our desktops to simulate the human brain with an M? Um, we, we still need a few decades of computing progress, plausibly. Now, it basically depends on how much detail we have to go into the brain, and this is just something we don't know, and this is where an awful lot of the uncertainty comes from. Uh, we don't really understand just how complicated each cell is in terms of its contribution to the uh, computing. Now, cells are, of course, enormously complicated, but plausibly most of what they're doing doesn't have that much to do with computing brain signals. Uh, cells are just have to survive and live and, and, you know, breathe and all the other things cells need to do. But there's some limited number of degrees of freedom within cells that are the degrees of freedom that the cell is using to uh, compute the brain. That is, in order to uh, notice input signals and transmit them to a place where state has changed and then transmit that to output signals. Uh, there's some limited degrees of freedom where that happens, and we don't know where exactly all of them are and, and how many of them there are. It, if it turns out there's not very many of them, then uh, we'll be able to do brain emulations relatively soon. We won't need as much computing power. If it turns out it's a lot more complicated than we thought, it'll take longer. But one way or the other, uh, eventually we'll have uh, computers big enough to do it and do it cheaper than the human brain does it. Okay. And then the, the second technology we need is we need to be able to scan brains. How good are our scanners today compared to what we would need? Well, they're actually pretty good. The main thing is scaling. So um, we can take any one brain cell or any one 
set of brain cells near each other and scan them already in good enough resolution. Uh, but you need a way to do an entire brain efficiently uh, and cheaply enough. We're actually not that far away. So out of these three technologies, I'd say scanning is probably the first one that's going to be ready. We'll be able to scan well before we can do the other things. Now, we don't know exactly what to scan until we have good enough models. So um, we don't need to scan all of the details of a brain. We just need to scan the key degrees of freedom that represent uh, the brain uh, state that uh, that in terms of how it thinks. Okay. And in terms of modeling what each cell does, how many different types of cells are there in the brain? Do you know? I think we don't know. We don't okay. really know how many different kinds of cells there are. That is, we see many cells. We don't know if they're the same or different because we have to look at all the little details and know what was relevant to figure out how many types of cells there were. Um, we, we have, for some kinds of types, do have decent models. Uh, there are people who do computational neuroscience, and when they focus on individual cells, they have done um, models that look like they capture most of what's going on in those types of cells. But we have to do that for all the cells. And these M's, will they be conscious? Will they be sentient creatures that are you know, alive, whatever that means? Well, they will talk like they are. <laughs> that is, um, by assumption, if you can model all of the relevant parts of the brain cells and, and you have a good enough scan of the brain, then the entire brain acts like the original brain would. So when you talk to it about consciousness, it talks back in exactly the same way the original would. You ask it if it's conscious or does it feel, and, and it will argue very <laughs> strongly yes. It will be persuasive and, and uh, articulate about that, just like you are. Um, by assumption, it has to uh, act just like you would. Uh, now, there are some who are skeptical about whether it would really be conscious and really feel, and, and I just set that aside relative to my book and say, well, that's a long discussion. And I've gotten sort of tired of all the old discussions. So. People have been talking about things like emulations under the name uploads and other names for many decades. And usually when the subject comes up, they usually focus on the questions of, well, uh, is it even possible? When would it happen? Uh, if you made one, uh, would it be conscious? Would it be me? And uh, people love to spend endless hours going over all those uh, topics. Uh, and they usually only made limited, make limited progress. And I always thought the neglected question, uh, which I decided to focus on for my book, was, what would actually happen? How, what does the world look like if you do this? And my impression of your book is what you try to do is use very unusual assumptions, but very standard economic analysis. So your goal was to say, okay, just if I could get a bunch of economists to accept these assumptions and then talk about it, we could pretty much agree on the conclusions that I come to. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So I'm I'm trying to be very conservative and straightforward with my analysis. Uh, that is, um, I'm trying not to be creative or original, <laughs> other than asking this unusual question. Now. Uh, in another field, in futurism and science fiction, the scenario of emulations is a very standard scenario that's off discussed. So I am being unusual with respect to economics. <laughs> Economists haven't discussed it much. And so I want to bring in all the tools of economics and computer science and physics uh, and psychology as appropriate and apply them all to this scenario and say what would actually happen. Okay. So let's now consider a future world. So there is a bunch of M's, would there, would there be a huge number of M's? Would we make like 50 of them or would there be you know, trillions of them? The key working assumption here is that they are cheap enough. Now, if they cost a billion dollars each and they're curiosities, then not much changes. Our world continues on and there's a few curiosities on the side. But if you can make them cheap enough so that they are competitive with human workers, 
that the cost to rent a human is higher than the cost to rent one of these machines with all the equipment required to make it work, then these things would displace human workers. And because you would make them in factories, uh, you would be able to make as many of them as you wanted quickly in factories. And that has enormous implications. It means the population of them very quickly expands. And so the growth rate of the economy very quickly expands. The economy could double every few months or a month or even faster uh, I mean, that's, because you can make things so really fast. I mean, that's amazing. If an economy is doubling every month, I mean, you know, two to the 20th is quite a big number. So Absolutely. So we'll quickly be, you know, our world will be fantastically rich. Very quickly. Now, the last few eras, the era of industry and the era of farming and the era of foraging, each, each of them may be encompassed seven to 15 doublings. And so uh, that's about as far as I'm willing to project the next era going before plausibly something else might happen. So if it's doubling every month, that's you know, only a year or two, and then something else might happen. Uh, so I'm not telling you about the entire future of the universe for the next trillion years. I'm only trying to talk about this next era when M's show up and uh, they live certain lives, and then something else may happen, and I'm not telling you what happens next. So that's interesting. So you're saying – you're basically saying – in about a hundred years, I have a prediction for what will happen for two years. That's right, but during those two years, there'll be as much change as there has been during the last three hundred or the previous ten thousand. Mm -hmm. And you, you make a point of how, um, like the industrial revolution, really is incredible if you look at growth rates and how much that increased human growth. That while we would think of you know, the economy doubling every month is fantastic, I mean the industrial revolution was basically that fantastic when compared to the long farming era, and the era of farming was fantastic when compared to the hunter-gatherer era. Right. Now the farther back we go, the worse the data gets. But what the data looks like is roughly steady exponential growth within each era. And then a sudden transition where in substantially less than a previous doubling time, the growth rate goes up by a factor of 50 or 100 or even more. So this is this has happened before. So it's not as, as absurd, at least based on past data, as it might superficially seem. Right. And I'm not just going on this past pattern. This past pattern is uh, thought-provoking, but you can set all that aside, and we just have standard economic growth theory, which says that if you can make substitutes for people in factories as fast as we can make stuff in factories, the economy can double every month or so. Mm -hmm. That's direct economic theory. Right, because uh, labor is a massive limitation on growth. We can quickly exactly. expand our capital, but we can't expand how many people we have. Right, so we have the large-scale immigration to a small. And if, we, and if we quickly expand capital without expanding people, the marginal value of the capital quickly declines. Right, uh, right. So, I mean, imagine we have a world where M's cost ten dollars each. Would we get, you know, companies would create trillions of these M's, and they would do huge amounts of work. Right. So now we're just in standard labor economics, but uh, in a slightly different variation. So um, wages would fall to the cost of making the emulations. Uh, so we're back to a Malthusian subsistence level. Okay, wage. can we unpack that a bit? So sure. it costs $10 to make an M. So any business could say, all right, we've got this you know, worker. We've already had, you know, someone's already made the first M, but we can make another copy of it, and that'll cost us exactly $10. And so that includes taxes and licensing fees and everything. So why will wages then fall to $10 or – well, it would be easier to talk about the you know daily rental price. Okay. okay. <laughs> so maybe we've got a penny to rent a M for a day. Okay. So if it costs, uh, or say a dollar a day to rent an M, uh, well, of course, a penny is better really because sometimes we have rented people for a dollar a day. 
mm. uh, when people have been very poor, but a penny a day is well below anything uh, humans have ever been rented for. Okay. Uh, so if you if if you can rent one of these machines for a penny a day, uh, then if there's a job with a wage of two pennies a day, well, there's an easy way to make a profit. You uh, go make another one of these machines, and you copy another worker from a previous machine over to this new machine, and uh, you connect them up, and you say, ta-da, here, I, I get to get two pennies a day worth of wage, and all it costs me is one penny a day of new hardware. Okay, so that, that makes sense. So if it costs a penny a day to create a new M, to have a new M, and you can earn more than a penny a day with that M, then you'll, you will create an M, and more people will do that until the wage falls to a penny right. a day for an M. So this is perhaps not very good news if you happen to be an M because the wage will fall just to the level where you can survive. Well, it's not good news if you thought you our era could continue. So uh, basically our era is this unusual exception. I like to call it the dream time. Uh, when we've had well above subsistence wages, but pretty much all animals who've ever lived lived at subsistence levels, and pretty much all humans until a few hundred years ago lived at subsistence, and even today another billion humans lives near subsistence humans, subsistence income. So it's the usual case historically. Uh, it's a very familiar case. It's not at all hypothetical, and we know how it works. We know how it happens. And people who lived at subsistence levels mostly lived okay lives. So it's not a hell. It's not perhaps the heaven that we have come to enjoy, but it's a, a very understandable world. Well, could people in this future world stop it? I mean, if wages are, say, say it costs a penny a day to run an M, and the Ms have a lot of political power, and the wage is currently a dollar a day, and they know it's going to fall, could they get together and say, all right, let's use collective action and stop this? We'd rather, you know, we want to keep wages high. Do you think that could work? Well, I think that's a pretty high bar. It's not necessarily impossible, but it's not remotely easy. So first of all, I would say, uh, as an economist, I think you will verify that supply and demand is our first cut analysis of everything. And so yes. the first thing I should have done in this book is to do a simple supply and demand analysis. And so I have done that. Uh, then, of course, after we've done a supply and demand analysis, then we start to ask more questions. Is there more market concentration? Is there scope for various price discrimination? Is there scope for regulation or unionization, uh, you know, et cetera? So we look for ways in which the simple supply and demand model might be wrong. So now here we're talking about um, an entire world economy uh, where there's some, say, natural wage of a penny a day. And we're wondering um, how far we could move the price away from that with uh, unionization and coordination and regulation and other sorts of uh, things we might try. And I think, uh, you know, e first of all, economics will probably tell you Pretty much always when people have tried to do that, they haven't been able to move it, say, more than much of a factor of 10 away from the natural market price. <laughs> you know, If you look at illegal drugs today, uh, certainly the fact that we've made them illegal has raised the price, uh, but it hasn't raised it enormously relative to what the market price would be without the regulation. Uh, because the, the, you know, the farther you try to move the price away from the market price, the more people are tempted to open black markets and to evade regulation in order to um, meet demand. Okay, so if if a group did succeed in keeping the wage much higher than the marginal cost of running a new M, there'd be a lot of profits for someone who didn't go along with this. Right. So if you're going to – the higher you want to move the price, the more strong of a regulation and an enforcement regime you're going to have to have. It won't be enough just to sort of have people maybe notice this once in a while and, and put them in jail if they don't. You'll have to sort of – put monitors on everybody's computers looking at what they're doing all the time 
to make sure they're not doing this and you know and then really squashing them if they ever do it i mean you'll need really draconian punishment and you'd probably need it throughout the world right because if yes you need it worldwide (laughs) so worldwide intrusive regulation and draconian punishment has a chance of succeeding uh at least you know within a certain range uh but that's really in a sense well beyond anything the humanity has ever managed before (laughs) Yeah, I mean, our global elites seem convinced that global warming is real, and it certainly might be, and they can't really coordinate to do anything meaningful about it. So it, in- Right, so certainly at the level of a factor of 10 in price of carbon, they haven't succeeded. You know, right. Maybe they've moved the price of carbon up by 5%, maybe even 10%. Uh, you could say that coordination so far has changed the price of carbon to that degree, but it certainly hasn't done it enough to substantially change the outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so in my book, when I say, you know, to subsistence level, I'm talking, say, roughly a, within a factor of two of subsistence level. I, I can certainly see that, uh, you know, coordination uh, of various sorts and price discrimination and market power uh, could uh, raise wages uh, maybe a factor of two above what the mark, the, the equilibrium supply and demand price would be. But even that, you know, two cents a day rather than one cents a day, you're still going to have an enormously changed economy. And my book will mostly tell you what it looks like. Mm -hmm. So you're predicting a future where most living things on Earth are emulations and most of them are living very close to starvation levels. They're living close to subsistence, but I wouldn't call that starvation. So it's important to notice that in the past, when people have been poor, uh, they've suffered a lot of things that emulations wouldn't suffer, even if emulations are poor. So first of all, uh, poor people in the past mostly suffered in the you know rare times when there were famines or um, disease and wars and things like that. So being poor was mostly okay, except that it made you vulnerable to uh, big disruptions like that. And it was in those big disruptions that the poor suffered the most. Uh, so in the emulation world, if the emulation world is more of a stable world, then you won't have those huge disruptions, and so the poor can just exist without suffering those things. Uh, in addition, emulations will be working in a moderate economy, so their jobs will not be ridiculously tedious and boring, like perhaps uh, the poor in the past jobs were. And most of their jobs will be desk jobs, which they might as well do in virtual reality, because that's very cheap compared to the cost of just running the emulation brains themselves. So uh, even if they're working most of the time, they're mostly working at a virtual desk uh, in a gorgeous, beautiful environment. And in virtual reality, they never need to feel pain or hunger or disease or grime. Their bodies are always beautiful. (laughs) Their environment is always beautiful. The air smells good. (laughs) You know, uh, from those points of view, it's, it's a very nice world, even if they have to work most of the time to exist. Well, but what if the way you could get M's to work the hardest is if you, you know, you occasionally tortured them for not working as hard as they should? How do we know we won't see that um, way of regulating labor? So we have a lot of data on the history of that sort of thing, and we have some theoretical understanding of, of why it has existed when it has. So, so first of all, the fact that in the past, sometimes people have been tortured uh, to get them to work in various ways uh, does suggest that it might well happen in the future. I, I certainly don't want to offer some Pollyanna assurance that there won't be terrible things in the future. You could say the same thing about war, of course, that there have been wars in the past, so there could be wars in the future. But when we look at sort of the detail of uh, these sorts of things, we, we can see that um, torturing people for work has mostly happened within a very limited set of kinds of jobs. 
It's not typical for most jobs. So in the past, when people have owned slaves, they have treated the slaves quite differently depending on the kind of jobs they had the slaves do. Now, if you had slaves and you put them in a uh, galley boat, or you put them picking cotton, or you put them in the mines, those are jobs that are really quite repetitive, and the main thing you wanted out of them was their muscle, and you wanted them to push past pain uh, to keep going even when it was painful. And in those contexts, uh, torture worked. Uh, whipping people, things like that, and in those contexts, many slaves were treated very badly, uh, put in pain and danger, and uh, you know even killed off relatively quickly uh, because in those jobs, that was okay. Uh, it was also that in, in the past, uh, when interest rates were so high, it wasn't usually worth uh, keeping slaves alive their entire life, and certainly not worth having them grow up new slaves. That was just too slow. And so mostly slaves come, came from conquest and war and things like that. Um, when in the past you had slaves, but you put them in more complicated jobs, like house servants or even uh, shopkeepers and all sorts of other things that slaves have done, um, they usually uh, had a lot more discretion on the job and they were rarely tortured. Uh, basically, you needed them to be motivated and to um, try to do their job well. So you had to offer some carrots, not just sticks. And that is the history of slavery. And often even uh, slaves in jobs like that would be given an extra wage if they did well and they could accumulate that wage and even buy their freedom. And that sort of thing happened. So the emulation economy really isn't going to have much jobs that are, are like uh, mining or cotton picking, etc. Mostly that's going to be automated. So most of the jobs are the jobs that are more complicated jobs of the sort that in the past uh, slave owners have treated their slaves relatively well to get them to uh, be productive in those jobs. Well, I mean, how do you know that? I mean, I can imagine a job of watching like security cameras. You could have if M's are cheap enough, you know, everyone has an M watching their whole home and it's really boring so what you do is if an m makes a mistake you say oh, i'll just torture you for a subjective million years how do you know that kind of thing wouldn't happen that would seem like watching people would be a good skill for an, a cheap m well again it depends on how routine the job is if it's really routine you'll probably be able to automate it the more judgment calls you need them to make then the less automatable it is so if you have them watching a camera and they need to make a lot of judgments about what kind of scene they're seeing and what kind of reaction to to invoke, etc., then you need them to uh, be more motivated to uh, do the job well. And then the threat of torture is a sort that isn't really usually uh, as effective as other uh, carrot-like incentives. This is the history of slavery that we've seen. Okay. Um, what kind of people will get turned into M's? Can you make predictions about that? Oh, sure. Um, the Initially, at the very beginning, um, you know, some companies will spend billions of dollars to uh, develop this technology and to be ready to field it, and they're hoping to make trillions of dollars renting these machines out. So they will initially be looking for uh, people who are uh, very productive in jobs right now, at the moment that happens. So they'll be looking for people at the peak of their careers and um, in careers that where there's a lot of demand. So lawyers, software engineers, things like that. And they'll also be looking for people who are willing to uh, go into this new world and deal with its strangeness and people actually who are willing to uh, undergo destructive scanning because initially the scans will be destructive. Mm -hmm. So it's a one-way trip. Um, and so uh, that will be the limited you know, pool of people you will go with, people who are willing to uh, make this strange trip and to be have their uh, biological body destroyed in the process and also are very productive at some jobs that a lot of there's a lot of demand for. That's the very beginning. But 
Soon this emulation world will change and the jobs there will change and they'll become more fo focused on the emulation world rather than just supplying uh, tasks that need doing in our world today. And as that happens, the demand will move to from people at the peak of their careers who already know how to do some job well to people who are younger and more flexible and able to learn the new jobs in the emulation world. And so that will move to younger and younger ages quickly. And then you'll go to the point where emulations are looking around the world for very promising children <laughs> to scan. And if at that point scanning is still destructive, uh, there'll be a lot of conflict, I expect. Uh, you know, some families, even if they're willing to have their children destructively scanned, uh, have a chance at succeeding in this new world. Their neighbors or society might disapprove of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a key assumption of, I mean, it, Something that makes your scenario much more realistic is that even if like 99.9% .9 of humans are horrified by this idea and would never agree to be scanned themselves, you just need a few people to agree to enter the emulation world. And there almost certainly will be a few people who are willing. And you just make lots of copies of those brains. That's right. So uh, the supply here is very elastic. Uh, and that's very different from uh, modern labor economics. So uh, most product markets today are actually relatively concentrated. Most products are produced by a small number of firms. But labor markets are different. They really are quite competitive because uh, there are just so many different people uh, that you need in, to fill any one substantially sized labor market. But for emulations, just a few people can supply an entire labor market mm -hmm. uh, because you, they can make as many copies of themselves as are, are in demand. Would you be willing to become an M? I would be willing. I expect I am already past the uh, flexibility prime <laughs> that they would find in most demand. Uh, but, you know, I, I might enjoy some uh, novelty of being uh, one of the old persons who was uh, so humans uh, might be a minority of the population quickly and then they would be novelties uh, and of interest curiosities at least yes I, and your book it makes a big deal of the different speeds at which M's could run so an M wouldn't just have to run at the speed of its old brain it could run many many times faster and that makes a huge difference. And, and I have to admit, I don't think I've really understood it uh, completely uh, because there's probably more things to understand about that. So it's a, it's a huge fragmentation of the, of the species by speed. So today, even if we are spread across the world, if, since we're running at similar speeds, our cultures can coordinate across the world. Music fashions can spread and technologies can spread. Uh, and we can you know it all experience the same world event at the same time uh, that we all watch it at the same time uh, because we're all running at the same speed. Emulations would run at different speeds. Uh, they wouldn't all run at the fastest possible speed because that would be expensive. The, the cost would be proportional to speed over a wide range, plausibly up to a million times faster than human speed or down to a billion times slower than human speed. And how do you know the, the brain would still work if you change the speed? Well, what we know is that the human brain is a very parallel computation. Uh, each cell is basically running in parallel, and there are, you know, almost 100 billion of the cells. So that's an enormous scope uh, of parallelization. So that means uh, if you just add more processors in parallel, you can run the process, the whole thing faster. You could run a simulation of an entire brain all on one processor, and it would run very slow. And the more processors you add, the faster the entire emulation can go. Okay, so you break down all the computations, you put each one on a separate computer chip, or each group in a separate computer chip, and you can run it much faster than if you had to do everything on one computer chip. Exactly. Okay. And then, so if these, if some of the M's are running a million times faster than our brains, it would seem that I mean, we wouldn't hold much interest to them. 
I mean, we would be just moving in slow motion. We'd basically be statues. So they wouldn't want to interact with us much, at least in that way. But uh, the different kinds of em speed emulations would want to interact, and the usual way to do that would be to have the slow ones temporarily speed up. So the slow brains would just move over temporarily to fast hardware, and then they could interact with the fast emulations, and then when they're done with the interaction, they'd move back. So, for example, plausibly, bosses will run faster than subordinates. And so when you meet with your boss, you'll have a fast meeting, which might take an hour subjectively, but you'll be uh, back out in 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. So effectively, the boss could spread out his time. So the CEO of a company could be doing many more things than the average employee could have much more time. Right. So a CEO can manage many more divisions. So the hierarchies can be shallower, which and, and that's usually thought to be a good thing. Uh, each manager can have a wider span of control because they run faster. Okay. And at these fast speeds, even the speed of light becomes important in terms of communication. Is that right? Uh, that's right. And that limits how fast they might want to go. So uh, if, if, for example, there's some sort of software product race and then they want to win the race, then they might run as fast as possible. And then they would mostly give up being able to talk <laughs> with most of the rest of the world because they're running so much faster. But if they don't need to talk to the rest of the world, hey, maybe they'll just go really fast and try to do their job. But, you know, as you know, we have a strong uh, economics of agglomeration literature that, that says there's a huge value in, in humans uh, clumping together into cities so they can interact with each other a lot. And emulations would have that same sort of value. So they'll want to clump in together with cities where they can interact flexibly with everybody in the same city. And at an ordinary city size, if um, if they ran at human speeds, of course, uh, they could interact in virtual reality with anybody in the city and not even know where they are. That's actually true on the entire scale of the Earth today. Mm -hmm. But if they run, say, um, up to, say, a thousand times faster than human speed, well, now uh, they need to be uh, within a few tens of kilometers away so that they can't really notice where they are. And if they get farther away than that, they'll start to notice the other person has a delayed reaction to them. Okay. And so that sets a limit on practical speeds in order to enjoy the agglomeration advantages, which says they won't run that much faster than a thousand times human speed, usually when they were wanting to interact with many others. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, they will have careers and they will need to train for their careers. And if their jobs change substantially over the course of their career, they have to get retrained, and that's a cost. So they would like to run at a speed such that their jobs really don't change over the entire scope of a subjective career that might be, say, a century or two. And that means they don't want to run much slower than a thousand times human speed if the economy doubles every month, and that's the scale in which jobs change. And so that's the basis of my suggesting that the typical speed will be roughly a thousand times human speed. Okay. So I, I think another important point is why you think the M age will only last like two years in human time. It might subjectively for an M, it might last an extremely long period of time. It could be millennia, which is plenty of time for their culture to evolve and to deviate from the culture it started with. That's different from the humans. For the humans, uh, if it's only a year or two for them, they will get fantastically rich very quickly, but the culture really can't be changing very much. So if you want to say what's human culture like, you'll say it's pretty much the same as it was when this whole thing started. But emulations could be very different. What would the growth rate be from the point of view of an emulation, from their subjective time point, point, time point of view? It would actually be a slower growing economy than to us. So for us, we, we have a lifespan of maybe 70 years, and the economic doubling time is maybe 15 years. And so that means we might see five doublings in our lifetime. But as I said, for emulations, they might choose a speed such that they see roughly one doubling in a lifetime. And oh. so that means their uh, their subjective work time, at least, and that means they would see uh, a world that changes slower 
uh, more manageable, more understandable change. Okay. What's the limitation then on growth rate in the M world? Why, from their point of view, would it grow slower than our world does? Well, standard growth theory doesn't really care that much about the speed of humans. So, um, you know, usually we, we have a, an amount of labor working in any one industry, and that amount of labor could be, um, you know, a certain number of workers at a certain speed. It couldn't be, it could be 10 times the number of workers running one-tenth the speed or uh, one-tenth the number of workers running 10 times the speed. Uh, as long as there aren't huge scale economies and speed and productivity, then uh, what matters is the total size of the economy uh, and its activity and not the speed of any one person. Okay. So you, you talk about how a different, an M could run at different speeds throughout its life, and that could sort of give it more subjective vacation versus work time? Uh, right. Well, there's several factors. So, so one is today when you have an employee on the job, uh, when he goes home off of work, if you need your client serviced, often you bring in new people and they don't know what the last guy did. And there's a substantial cost to, to having multiple people serve clients over a daily cycle or a weekly cycle. And so for emulations, it'll be handy if they, um, you know, go off of the work for 45 minutes and they're back on and subjectively they experienced a whole 16-hour rest. Uh, but objectively, they're they're back on the job relatively quickly. Okay. So uh, that's one reason to run leisure time between workdays um, faster than the workday. Okay. So this is like when now like high-powered lawyers, they, they have to be on call all the time for their clients. Um and what would happen in M world is you'd basically still be on call all the time for your clients. It's just when you took your break, you'd speed up everything. So subjectively, it wouldn't seem that way to you, although to the client, it would seem right. pretty much almost so, always. Subjectively, you have a very low chance of being interrupted at any one moment uh, when you're sped up. Mm -hmm. uh, even though the, from the client's point of view, you're pretty much a very quickly respond to any call. Okay. Uh, so in addition, uh, there's the idea that um, – you may, say, at the beginning of a workday, make a bunch of copies of yourself, and not all of them would go on to the next day. Uh, I call these spurs. Uh, they are much uh, cheaper in the sense that one worker who, say, works eight hours and then takes 16 hours off, only a third of their total time is spent working. But if at the beginning of the work time you have refreshed workers and you make a 1,000 copies, say, uh, all 1,000 of them could work for eight hours, and at the end of the day only one goes on to the next day for – 999 out of them, you only you paid for only that those eight hours. You didn't pay for all the rest of the leisure. So, like, how could that work? Let's imagine it would be it's possible to clone biohumans. So, I like make a 20 clones of myself. They all work tomorrow, and then 19 of them die, and I've gotten 20 times as much work done. Is that sort of an analogy? Well, it's not just the times work done. Is that all of those guys didn't need to rest for the next day? Okay, so I killed them before they had to go to bed. Exactly. Before okay. they even took, you know, went home for to watch TV and have dinner. But if the M's are basically human, why wouldn't they object as strongly as like someone would object to like you know dying for their identical twin? Just so again, we talk about this, you know, even if most people find this horrifying and wouldn't do it, we just need to find some people who do. Uh, but it, it's better than that in the sense that uh, imagine that you went to a party and you took a drug at the beginning of the party. Uh, which meant that you won't remember that party the next day or afterwards. I've heard from people who have actually done that. Uh, near the end of this party, you could think similarly, I'm about to die. <laughs> uh, the me who is here at the party uh, won't continue on. The, the guy who wakes up tomorrow morning, that's not me. That's somebody who doesn't remember what I'm thinking today and have my feelings today. Uh, you could, therefore, be really stressed at that moment uh, about you're a separate creature about to die. Most people probably wouldn't actually be that stressed at that point. 
but it's a way it's a framing choice it's about how you think about that you could think about yourself as a separate creature about to die or you could think of yourself as part of the larger person who just won't remember that part and, and ems can think about them these spur copies themselves that way too it's it's part of me that i don't remember okay I guess it's kind of like if you're aware that you're dreaming and you're also aware that I'm going to completely forget this dream when I wake up. So if you're dreaming and you become a different person and you know you're dreaming, you'll know that you'll basically be dead once the brain wakes up and you might, you know, if you right. don't care, you don't panic at that thought. Right. So if you were in a dream and you realized you were dreaming and you realized you wouldn't remember the dream the next day, are you going to be panicked about your upcoming death? Probably not. Uh, so it's it's about how you think about it. Mm-hmm. Now, how would moving much faster sort of interplay with the physics of real objects of, you know, it's still, you can't, if you, you know, if the M's are controlling a body, the body still can't move like a thousand times faster than, you know, biohumans could move probably. Right. So remember, most jobs are going to be desk jobs and they can be done in virtual reality and virtual reality can run at whatever speed you like. So that's not a problem. But many jobs, perhaps 20% or so would be real physical jobs. They need to drive trucks, run factories, um, oversee construction, uh, real physical activities so for that they will want real physical bodies now those bodies don't have to look just like human bodies they can be whatever bodies are suitable for the task humans have already shown their ability to use machines as if they were part of their bodies for a very wide range of machines um, but still the machine would have a size and uh, that will affect the speed of controls so it happens that in the human body the fastest um speed at which you can change uh, body parts is roughly a tenth of a second, and that happens to match the reaction time of your brain, and that's no coincidence. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any point in having your brain designed to be able to react faster than your body could be changed. Mm -hmm. uh, so when, if, if an emulation runs uh, ten times faster, uh, then it could manage body parts that could change ten times faster. If it, in fact, has an ordinary size body, that body will feel sluggish uh, because you'll want to make a change, and then you'll have to wait ten times longer before you see a change. If you make the body 10 times smaller, however, it turns out that that would make the parts uh, react 10 times faster, and that would feel about right. So uh, a, an emulation that was a 1,000 times human speed plausibly would feel natural controlling a body a 1,000 times shorter, i.e. a millimeter and a half tall. Okay. And it, might it be that like if an M has a body, it just the M wouldn't work very well if there was a big disconnect between its reaction time and the size of its body, that something about our brains needs our body to react in a certain time frame to keep us sane? No doubt. As people explore the pace, space of possible M's and the ways to put them, they will discover the space of things that make them insane. <laughs> and then they will presumably stay away from that space. <laughs> oh, hopefully, yes. Uh, so, you know, we already know that people in uh, bodies that don't move, people who are paralyzed, say, uh, they suffer some degree of psychological uh, cost of that. They aren't all made completely crazy. Many people uh, survive through that and are okay having a limited degree of control. But yes, it, it's not pleasant. Okay. Now, will these M's um, keep getting better? Will new M's be better than old M's? So will M's become obsolete? Well, uh, first of all, M's will be better than us because they'll be selected uh, from the best of us. So plausibly, uh, most M's are copies of the few hundred uh, best humans, uh, or at least best for the point of view of being productive in emulation economy. So that's a huge increase in quality. Then the M hardware will slowly get cheaper. So uh, over time, um, 
as the computer hardware gets cheaper, uh, they will be able to have more M's and have them do more things uh, just because of that, even if the emulation minds themselves don't improve. Presumably over time, eventually people will figure out how to make more changes to minds. Now initially, uh, brains are just this big complicated spaghetti code, so I've assumed initially in the book that uh, you, you basically can't modify them much. You can turn them on, turn them off, run them fast or slow, uh, delete them, copy them, but you can't change them much. Uh, though toward the end, I do discuss some of the changes that might be possible. Initially, there'll probably be some tweaks, some ways to make you more focused or more happy or more uh, you know, creative or whatever. Uh, but there'll be a limited set of tweaks. But then later on, they'll probably be able to change the uh, brain design a bit. The, the problem, most likely changes would be to just cut out big chunks that aren't used very much. <laughs> so, you know, our brains devote a large fraction of their volume to uh, sight and sound. Because for our ancestors, uh, they were hunters, and it was really important to be able to see and hear well in the forest as they were hunting. But in office jobs today and plausibly in the future, you don't need to see and hear that well. So they could uh, just greatly reduce the sizes of the brains that are devoted to those things, and plausibly if they could just find a simple way of scaling them down, then they might still function just at a lower resolution. Mm -hmm. That would be a, a plausible way to to cheap to make them cheaper. Yeah, I imagine it would also be easy to simulate what it would be like to take different drugs, so you could quickly consider sure. various drug modifications. And, and that's what I call in the space of tweaks. They'll be in very right off the bat. You'll you'll try a bunch of small variations, and some of them will do interesting things. Most of them won't, but that I think will reach diminishing returns until you can have an understanding of things at a larger scale. Okay. So what would happen to an M that's no longer productive? It couldn't pay its own cost. Would it would it just be turned off and die? And well, that's where speed comes in. <laughs> um, any emulation who is stressed about dying uh, can just be run at a much slower speed at a at a very low cost. So, if the typical emulation runs at a at a human at, at a thousand times human speed, then they could retire at a human speed, and that would only cost one thousandth of what it costs to run them as a worker, and that's a pretty low price. So, uh, if they're at all worried about ending, they'll just be allowed to run slow. Okay. Would there still be a storage cost to that? Of course there would, but um, w the, the place where storage cost equals the computing cost to run an M is roughly the lowest speed that you could run and, and be in this linear range. And that's what sets this one billionth times human speed. So uh, plausibly, the cost to store a human brain is roughly one billionth the cost to run a human brain at human level speeds, uh, which is why uh, human, the, the M's could run vastly slower than human speed. And then the M's would just wait to whatever the next thing was if we got super intelligent AI that would hopefully make right. so, paradise so, with them. So humans and M retirees together acquire a strong interest in the stability and future of the civilization, which is different than today. Uh, today, there aren't really that many parties that have a, much of a strong interest in the long-term future of civilization because mm -hmm. we all run at roughly the same speed. But the slow ones will now care a lot about uh, the future because – if this era only lasts a year or two, then them having a longer life than a year or two requires that this civilization be stable, not only over its entire uh, breadth, but uh, into the next eras afterward as well. That's interesting. So the so poor people would be much more future oriented than rich people because the rich M's yes. would yeah would say, well, I'll be alive a million years pretty much no matter what subjectively. The poor person would say, well, I only get to live to next year if the civilization survives the past this M age. Right. Now – it's also interesting uh, that the poor, especially the retirees, uh, the ones who run slow, are in a sense like ghosts. 
they, they fit a lot of the features of our ghosts that we find in literature. Uh, in, for any fast-running worker M, there would be this cloud of ghosts around, uh, far more ghosts than the uh, main workers. And these ghosts would be running slower. Uh, they would be available to talk to, but they wouldn't really be up on the latest things. <laughs> they wouldn't really know that much, and they'd probably be a little uh, obsessed about the past and uh, you know, hard to talk to and not very influential, and you can mostly ignore them without much of a cost, which is mostly the myth of a ghost. Mm. Yeah, you'd have to slow down a, a lot to talk to one of the ghosts if you're you – know. Or pay to speed them up. I imagine there'd be a lot of conflict if you're, you know, your your father or something became a ghost and he'd want to talk to you and you're like, you know, it's, to talk to you for an hour would take cost me a century or something. And, Wait, but again, you, you'd pay to speed them up, but you might not want to pay to speed them up. Okay. Oh, you know, what cost to pay to speed them up and maybe you don't want to budget that. So what you'd have is these ghosts sort of pinging you around saying, please pay me to <laughs> pay me, pay to have me speed up and give you some advice. I got advice for you. <laughs> and you know, there'd be this, you know, almost like a fairy dust really if you wanted to see it there'd be a view in which you could see the fairy dust around you of all these ghosts who are available to talk to you if only you'll pay to speed them up so I, how will the m's interact among themselves to engage in economic activity i mean if the very fast m's will they won't really be interacting with humans because we'll be going too slowly so how will they be doing business with each other what will they be what will they care about what will they want to produce well the the basic assumption is that uh you know, they will want to agglomerate together in cities and have a division of labor, uh, just like we do. And, uh, you know, it's still an advanced, complicated economy trying to do a lot of different things. And uh, that means they will want to clump together in cities, and they can clump more easily to the cities than we can. So they're more likely to be in a small number of very dense cities, maybe less than half a dozen, uh, rather than the, you know, hundreds of cities we're spread out in across the world. Uh, and uh, they would clump by speed. So, um, just as we clump geographically so we can interact with more people because being at different speeds would limit their ability to interact. They would want to clump and run at a limited set of speeds. So the people who wanted to run the fastest would be in one city and then the people who couldn't quite afford that would be right. in another city. So you could... or, or it might be rings in the same city. It might be the, cent, you know, the central area was the fastest and there's a ring of slower around that and another ring of slower around that ah. so that they, could, they could interact with each other. So as you go out to the slums, people are literally Slow. slower and are exactly. not, not able to keep up. How would that affect politics in an M city? I mean, if some mines are running a thousand times faster than others, it would seem they would win all the political battles. Well, uh, one M, one vote just doesn't work because it becomes really easy to pay to create lots of little slow ones. Mm -hmm. So speed-weighted voting might work. Uh, where you get votes in proportional to speed as long as you were sort of averaging that speed over a longer time period so that you didn't sort of pay to speed up just before the election. Mm -hmm. um, then, um, you know, it depends on uh, whether the, how much they'll want democracy or other sorts of rulers. Uh, it's harder to say. I think there'll be a, more advantages for centralized rulers than our world has. Centralized rulers can run faster. Uh, they can have many copies of themselves to put in trusted roles. So they don't have to worry so much about coups. Uh, they can also uh, tell people trustworthy things through what I call safes. So um, in, in general, in the M world, anybody can meet with a celebrity easily. So any, anybody can meet with the president because the president just spawns off a new copy and the new copy meets with you. And then the new copy is ended after meeting with you. So the hard thing in the, in the M world is to get celebrities to remember you. It's easy to meet them. <laughs> uh, but you can use this to, uh, to, to be trust, to get trust 
for the information out of its level. So today, if you uh, if the president says we must invade this foreign country and you say why and they say it's state secrets, sorry, we can't tell you, uh, you'll just have to trust us. <laughs> You're not sure what to believe. In the emulation world, uh, a copy of you and a copy of them could go inside a safe and inside the safe they could give you all their secret reasons. And then at the end of an interaction, you would just send one bit out of the safe. Was I convinced or not? And now none of the secrets get leaked. All that is leaked is, are you persuaded? Mm -hmm. And so now uh, you can trust your leaders more because if you uh, want to see their reasoning behind anything, um, they don't have an excuse not to show it to you. Oh, that's interesting. And there'll be you said there'll be different clans of M's because there'll be so many copies of each individual M and that these different clans would, would cooperate right. with each other and have reputational issues. So again, most emulations are probably copies of the best few hundred humans, but there may be billions or trillions of M's. So that means for these uh, humans who have a lot of copies, they'll have billions of copies of them. They These copies, all who came from the same original human, will have a lot of similarity. They are more like each other than family members are today or even identical twins are today. Uh, and so it's a natural unit of, of, a, of social organization. Uh, during the farming era, uh, families were a natural unit of organization because people felt more allied to their families than to other people. Families were used, family clans were used for, for war and for politics and for business and marriage. You know, it was all organized around family clans. So there's a temptation for the M world to organize many things around these copy clans uh, because they trust each other more and they are more similar in many ways. Okay. And also, if, if one person from your clan um, misbehaved, that would hurt the whole clan, so the clan would have an interest in... Right, so the more similar you are, the more inferences people could draw about uh, one from looking at the other. So that means they are tied in that way. Uh, they're also tied, of course, in negotiating labor contracts. If one is trained and then you make many copies, if they could negotiate labor contracts separately, they would probably negotiate wages down to a level that doesn't cover their fixed costs. And so they'll they'll need to uh, coordinate together to cover their fixed costs of, of training and uh, learning how to do things in the first place. Yes. Although you could imagine you might select for M's that wouldn't do that. If you're if you're the cap, you're a biohuman capitalist, you might say, well, I don't want to create M's that are going to organize among themselves when negotiating with me. I want to create M's that are too chaotic to ever coordinate with themselves. Well, but, but somebody has to cover the fixed costs. I mean, that's just the economic necessity. So you, so you could have ones where they, there is no fixed cost, and then there's not a problem, and then you can negotiate separately. So, for example, I predict there will be open source M's who uh, don't require much training other than just working. And all these open source M's are basically available to anybody to hire at basically the cost of running them. So uh, there's always this pool of people who, if you will give them hardware for them to run on, they'll do whatever you ask, pretty much. So that, that would be the equivalent of my saying, you know, there's a machine that can make a copy of a person, and I say to the world, hey, anyone who wants to make a copy of me, that's fine. Do with do with it whatever you want. You, you might have a small number of constraints, but, you know, there's a question of how well you could implement that. But, yeah, that's the idea of open source code, and you might decide to be an open source person because you might think, this will mean I have a future. This will mean that there will be a lot of me in the future, and uh, they will learn a lot of things, and maybe I will last because uh, I'm available. Okay. Uh, you write that you think most of the M's are going to be men. Why is that? I didn't say most would be men, but I said the gender ratio might be unequal, and I don't know which direction it might go. Okay. So today we have an equal number of men and women because of biology. Biology has ensured that uh, we make produce equality because that's the uh, equilibrium when you need one of each gender to reproduce. But uh, emulations reproduce via making copies, so they no longer uh, need one of each gender for that purpose. And plausibly, this uh, again, the demand 
demand is the main thing that sets the number of things because the supply is so elastic. And there may be an unequal demand for male workers versus female workers. But I don't know which. Uh, but either way, it's an issue because probably most Dems will want to pair bond in the way that humans have so far. They'll want to have a male-female romantic uh, or sexual connection. Mm -hmm. uh, but if there's unequal numbers, uh, that would be a barrier. So I talk in the book about a number of ways that Ems could deal with that issue. And so there's enough different techniques that plausibly they would uh, find some mixture of them to uh, get by. But it is a, an issue. Okay, so... The, if there were, say, more men than women, the women could make spurs and run at faster speeds to basically pair bond with multiple men. Well, so the key, key thing is that you expect uh, there's this unequal demand at work, uh, and then people have a limited leisure time. And so the question is how they use their limited leisure time. So w one way is for, you know, you could do it on, if there were more men than women, then, you know, a woman could spend four hours a day with four different men or um you know, you could have M's run at different speeds and then the, and in the pair, one of them sees the other one more often subjectively than vice versa because they're running at different speeds. Or you could uh, do it where you, you make these copies at the workday who don't all go on to the uh, leisure time at the end. And it's only the leisure time at the end that needs to be more equal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, would it be easy for M's to engage in space travel? Well, M's civilization will be vastly wealthier, and of course, M's themselves are smaller and, and, and much better suited for space. Uh, but the main problem is that space is just huge distances, which just take time to travel. So if an economy is doubling every month and a trip to Mars takes a year, uh, that's just a ridiculously large opportunity cost. And uh, even if it's much cheaper, it would be done pretty rarely. Uh, if you can find ways to cheaply enough zip around in space at less than the doubling time of the economy, then there's more of a chance that they will go out into space. But even so, again, it's a very competitive economy. And they're trying to be very productive, and mostly it's not that productive to spread away. Uh, mostly it's more productive to concentrate in some few dense cities. Okay, so they'll have greater ability but lower desire to colonize space than biohumans. For the duration of this era I'm talking about, of course, but if this only lasts a year or two and something else happens, mm -hmm. it still might be that within a century, <laughs> space gets colonized. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you're right, what do you expect to see before we're able to create brain emulations? And what kind of technological progress would occur that would make your scenario more likely? Well, there are the three key technologies required, mm -hmm. and uh, the technology doesn't happen until the three of them are good enough. So uh, people would be tracking these three technologies, and, and when they got close to good enough, then people might be tempted to start to invest in them and create businesses based on it uh, in the hope of being the first. Um, the technology that's hardest to predict is the modeling, because often you don't know that you have good enough models until you do. Uh, you know, we'll be able to track computing costs, and we have been doing that uh, you know, quite easily. And so, of course, if computing costs stop following, stop falling, uh, that would be an issue if they if they stop at a level well above what would make uh, emulations uh, cost effective, then the entire emulation scenario could be pre precluded if, if computers never got cheap enough. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, if somehow brain we learned that, that we really need very detailed brain scans and there was some uh, mechanical obstacle to doing so, that, that would be an, uh, something that was problematic. Mm -hmm. But most likely the issue is going to be modeling. And so... Um, you know, it can just be that we don't put much effort into modeling and uh, don't know how far away we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we just don't know how far away this scenario might be. And then at some point, somebody does enough modeling to say, hey, 
we're almost there. And then all of a sudden, uh, everybody has to deal with this. If we were, you know, quickly approaching an MA age, like what investment advice do you have for biohumans? For someone who's not rich enough to set this up themselves, like what kind of stocks would do well? Well, there's two issues. There's the upsides and the downsides. So uh, the first priority is to deal with the downsides. The, the, the clear big downside is that uh, there's going to be uh, – everybody's going to lose their jobs. <laughs> and so people need to have assets uh, other than their jobs, their ability to work. So uh, people need to arrange insurance or sharing or investments uh, so that as soon as they lose their job, they don't starve. That's plausibly done well, should be done well before this era seems to be about to show up. I would advise not waiting until the last moment. It might be too late at the last moment. <laughs> so we should probably just set up some sort of uh, insurance or sharing or other sorts of arrangements early on, not well before this era shows up and just be ready. That would be the safe thing. And there's nothing that would prevent us from doing that early. Uh, that's all about the downside of preventing uh, starving to death. Uh, on the upside is uh, you might like to uh, get a share of this new economy. So you might think, oh, where will this new economy show up and in which industries and, and how fast? So most likely um, this, this new world will start in a few places on Earth and be concentrated there. And it will matter where those places are. And most likely they will be places that are near initial human customers, but not so near as to bother them when, <laughs> when they create these huge cities. And uh, with enough regulatory freedom such that uh, they can make a lot of changes. The, the emulation economy will probably need a lot of variances from uh, existing regulations, and they'll need them fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you've got a place that says, this looks interesting, but we've got some committees and we've got a six-month review and we'll talk to you then, <laughs> uh, then it just won't happen there. And in addition, there may be places that have some sort of repugnance or, or distaste for it and, and want to prevent it. And then it will happen elsewhere. Uh, in addition, you might hope that you or more plausibly your children or grandchildren could be the uh, become the wealthy many times copied M's. And for that, you'll want to teach them to uh, value and uh, have the skills and styles that are valued by this new world. Mm -hmm. You want them to be okay with some strangeness and alienation and be ready to deal with some uh, difficulties and, and to work hard and to strive to be the very best because it's the few very best that get most of the winnings here. Okay. Um, and you, you started the book with a, a Herodotus quote. The, the Herodotus quote is, everyone without exception believes his own native customs and the religion he was brought up in to be the best. Why did you start your book with that? Well, that introduces the way I motivate the book in that very first section. And I motivate it by telling you that um, you are living in a culture that you're used to, but uh, there are these other places out there where things are different, and there are other times where things have been and will be different. And I'm going to tell you in this book about a very strange alien time. And people have a set of predictable reactions to uh when they're introduced to very different cultures, mostly they like their own and find reasons to dislike the others. Okay. Uh, people are comfortable with their cultures. Cultures have a lot of stories they tell each person about why their culture is best and not only uh, more virtuous but more moral and, and everything else. And people are often taught to be suspicious of and even hate uh, other cultures. 
And that is, in fact, uh, what happens today in cultures around the world and even how we treat history. Uh, we are often feel quite superior to people in the past. We feel they were immoral, terrible people, even if they uh, couldn't help it because they didn't, were never told better. And we are proud that we are different from them. Uh, but the future is going to be different from us. And one of the reactions people predictably have is, uh, look, these people in the future, they aren't following our moral codes now. They aren't following the behaviors that seem proper for us. And that sounds terrible. And that sounds evil. And what should I do? You know, and, and I want people to uh, pause on that and, and realize that there's just this very general habit of thinking your culture is best and maybe to be able to step away from that a bit. I, I don't want to say that you should decide this is a good culture. I want to say that you should keep an open mind. Uh, if people from a thousand years ago had been told about your world, uh, they would have loved or hated it depending on which things they were told about first. Uh, because your world is so different from them. And if they had some power over you, you would probably want them to pause and, and consider it carefully and not jump to conclusions before they'd heard a lot about your world. And in the conclusion of the, my book, I, I try to give that argument for you in the future. I say, uh, you know, parents are sometimes tempted to disown their children, uh, but they should probably be instructed to uh, do that very reluctantly, to, uh, <laughs> to really look closely at your children's lives and their attitudes and what they think before you would disown them. Uh, don't just do it on the basis of some rumor or some uh, surface description. Uh, look at it closely because uh, that's an important decision. So this is a future world and it's very different and in some ways it violates uh, the norms that you've been taught about proper behavior. Uh, but I suggest you try to see this world from their point of view and then judge whether you love it or hate it or something in the middle. Kristen, whether you love it or hate it doesn't relate to whether it'll come to being. So, Right. So my job in writing the book has been to try to tell you as straight as I can what's just likely to be. So I thought I should avoid trying to be too uh, moralistic or evaluative about this world. Uh, I should mostly tell you what it's like and leave it to you to evaluate. I have no doubt, because it's what I've seen consistently, that many people will evaluate this world if they think about it. Uh, it's what they consistently do every time I introduce them to the world. And, and my struggle is to get them to think about it first before they evaluate it, to, to actually think about the facts of the world and see it in some detail before they jump to conclusions. Mm -hmm. What about an objection to your theory that if you're, look, you're predicting something a century out, the world is just going to be so incredibly weird that we really can't make any predictions with you know being more than 1% confi confidence? That you're not, you're not, your theory isn't weird enough. What do you, how do you handle that objection? Well, I'd say um, what matters is what's the next really big change. So, you know, the farming era had many distinctions, but there were a lot of things that were consistent across the entire farming era. But then when industry showed up, a lot of those previous things were thrown out the window. And there's a lot of things that have been pretty consistent across the entire industrial era and across the entire world during the industrial era. Um, so I would say I have a better chance of, of at least capturing a lot of the elements of this world if this is the first really big change. Uh, and that's a plausible reason why if there's three more big changes, uh, trying to describe the world after the third one is kind of hopeless. <laughs> but it's not necessarily hopeless to think about what happens after the first really big change if we can identify which thing it might be. Uh, so, his, you know, again, we do understand the past and we do have a sense in which people in the past could have predicted the future, at least until big disruptions happened. Okay. 
Um, what if the next big change is genetic engineering for, for higher intelligence? There's a lot of evidence in the next you know, five to 10 years, we are going to figure out the genetic architecture of human intelligence. Then we can use existing fertility technologies to maybe create kids three to 20 standard deviations above what we have now in intelligence. So when I say big change, I'm really imposing a very high standard. So in all of human history, there have probably been hundreds of things that deserve the label big change. But only three of them were things that changed the entire eras. Uh, there have only been three eras so far. So in that sense, there's only been three really big changes, even though there were lots of changes. So, for example, the introduction of writing was a big change, but it did not change the era. It happened during the industrial era, I mean, during the farming era, and it didn't change the nature of the farming era, even though it was an important change. Similarly, I might say, uh, if you can point to a big change like uh, genetically engineered intelligence, that is a big change, but it's not necessarily on the scale of the Industrial Revolution or the Farming Revolution. And in fact, I'd say a world full of smart genetically engineered people doesn't look that different from the world we see around us today. They would still uh, you know, live in cities, <laughs> uh, sleep in, the, in beds at home, uh, drive or be driven in transportation. They would have specialized jobs, they might still go to school, uh, you know, most of the stru basic structures of our industrial world would continue on even with genetically engineered smart children. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much. You, I, do you think there are any points that you'd like to raise that we haven't covered today? No, no, I thought you've done a very good job, especially for a more economically uh, aware audience. Uh, we've talked a lot about the, a lot of economics of this that I don't usually get to do. <laughs> okay, well, great. Well, thank you very much, Robin. And the book is The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the Earth. And in the show notes, there'll be a link to the Amazon page of the book. Um, thank you very much, Robin. Have a nice day. <laughs> thank you. Uh, if you could link to my web, my book page, that would be appreciated too. Oh, sure. Uh, could you? Yeah, you could send me a, a, an email. It's just ageofm.com. Okay, sure. I'll do that. Well, folks, that concludes my interview with Robin Hansen. His book again is The Age of M, and Robin blogs at overcomingbias.com. If you like this podcast, I'd be grateful if you left a positive review at iTunes or wherever you can. And thank you very much, jprince42, for writing a very nice review that has me in excellent company. Goodbye.